Hi, I'm Daryl Wandra Serrano. I'm Ariana Ruiz. I'm Renee Rocha. And this is Imagining Latinidades. Thank you so much for joining us uh, in uh, this third episode of Imagining Latinidades, the podcast. We are, you know, we're gearing up for the first uh, big event of our Sawyer Seminar kind of main event year, uh, which is an opening conference, Imagining Latinidades in Global and National Perspective. I am joined by one of my co-hosts. Ariana. Hello, Daryl. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Uh, And sadly... Renee is not with us today. Boo. Boo, Boo, Renee. Yeah. Uh, But this year, our plan is to be be using this podcast uh, in part to introduce all the different events that we're hosting on campus. You know, as we've mentioned, uh, as we've mentioned before, we're going to be hosting a total of six events on campus, an opening conference that's three days long, a closing conference that's three days long. Uh, and four one-day symposia in between. And all this will span the academic year from now until May. And for us really thinking about that opening and closing conference to be able to have a group of people talking to one another about the field of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies. You know, the title of our Sawyer seminar is Imagining Latinidades, Articulations of National Belonging. And so really to open it up, thinking about imagining Latinidades, what does that mean? What does that look like for us, especially in global and national perspective? So we can start to think about, all right, what is Imagining Latinidades. So, Daryl, do you want to talk a little bit about perhaps how we came up with that title? And I'm I'm happy to jump in along the way. <laughs> yeah, you know, coming up with the with the with the specific title and the kind of key themes, all of which are on our website, by the way. If you want to kind of explore some of the scholarly rationale and who the you know, the specific folks we had in mind as we're thinking about these terms. Um, Coming up with that, you know, was was certainly an adventure. Uh, we went through a lot of different iterations, which some of them d- we touch upon. Um, I think with this group of scholars, uh, I know we had originally talked about perhaps basing it on food. So it was really nice to see one of our guest speakers focusing on the space of the restaurant, which we'll get we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but really thinking about that idea of not only how the nation imagines Latina, Latino, Latinx populations, but also how we imagine ourselves, yeah. both now in the future, uh, the way that we've created community in the past, all of these different notions of belonging that come through, uh, which I think is something that's especially important when we're thinking about identity formations and these questions of citizenship. Yeah. And, you know, like how we talked about in the in our first episode, when we were dealing a little bit with that term articulations. Um, I think imaginary has a couple of different valences uh, that are all kind of germane to us and how we were conceptualizing putting together this mm-hmm. year. So, I mean, you know, one one kind of root of imaginary and imagining for us comes from uh, Charles Taylor's work on social imaginaries, right, which are kind of these uh, these these things that include a set of practices uh, and sensibilities, a habitus even, uh, for how one belongs to a particular public culture. These are things that can be 
dominating, right? They mm-hmm. can be, you know, especially when they're operating within a kind of larger societal kind of scale, uh, they can really function to constrain and to exclude. They can also function at, you know, smaller levels um, as kind of resources, what Raymond Williams would call resources of hope. Uh, so we have that, you know, we have this this one sense of imaginaries that's kind of like broader, that might deal with kind of notions of social control, that deal with broader, oftentimes deal with broader political structures and practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have, you know, we have other senses of imaginary too, like, like you know, that developed by Juan Flores, right, mm-hmm. his work on the Latino imaginary. Right. And so I, part of what you were talking about that particularly caught my attention was that idea of scale, because we are working at various scales, right? Um, I know that the title we talked about global and national perspective, but even there we can go into these smaller scales as well as these smaller spaces um, from art to, again, the restaurant to uh, legal discourse to representation within politics. All of these different things coalesce and come into conversation, which will be really interesting to see um, and hear about once the opening conference uh, starts and comes our way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, tagging on to that, you know, another way to think about it is we're going from that, that kind of that that smallest scale, the smallest aspects of, and sometimes even seemingly mundane aspects of everyday life, right? right. The things that we don't usually think about uh, as like really cognitively process as things that have huge significance, mm-hmm. right? All the way up to these big, visible, structural things like you know, elected political officials, right? Right. That that on face seem like, okay, this is really important. And and all these things are important. Yeah, no, it makes me think of that um, saying that my existence is resistance, right? Because really just the way that we move in our everyday lives, how that might inform questions of citizenship, right? And I'm not meaning citizenship in the legal term, but just in Again, that everyday belonging, uh, feeling like you are claiming space, taking up space, and who has access to do that, and who feels like they might not, right? Yeah, and how and and how people like make the claim, right, to right. belonging and to have access and and create the spaces for that as well, right? So we're talking about the these various kinds of like pushes and pulls, right? Mm-hmm. Various kinds of structures and cultural and social and political formations that delimit who counts as belonging, who counts within Latinidad or Latinidades, who can be imagined as part of a we. And how we transform it as well. Exactly. Yeah. How that, how that, how those bigger kinds of structures and understandings and imaginaries get transformed, how kind of counter imaginaries are developed and articulated and crafted from below. Uh, and so there's there's all these different kinds of like trajectories, and I, I hate to use the term lines of flight, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Go right? for it, yes, <laughs> lines uh, of flight that that help craft these formations and assemblages, right? That structure belonging and unbelonging, being and unbeing, uh, that that are all. Both, you know, either in the backdrop of what all of our guests are thinking about, I think, and mm-hmm. talking about, uh, but also will be the explicit focus of some of their analyses. And now this is going to be interesting to me. As we were setting up, we were uh, having this conversation and really even just thinking about the placement of my own work, my own research as one that's very much fixed in the United States. Right. So I was like, Latinos? 
globally and nationally. Okay, I got the national part. I'm really interested to get to know more about this global Latinidad that is that is going to be um, at the forefront of many of these conversations that we're going to be having for this opening conference. Um, and so shall we get in, into it? Sure. See, who are we bringing out, Daryl? Well, we've got a, a, a slate of really awesome speakers uh, some of you, know, you've probably already seen the titles of their talks, but we'll mention those here today and talk a little bit about uh, some of their prior research and how that might, how we think it might be informing how they approach uh, the topics that they're going to be uh, addressing. Um, so, I mean, I think maybe uh, maybe the the best place to start is with uh, is with Ana Sampaio, who is our keynote speaker, who will be speaking on the, the kind of opening Thursday of our conference, which I think is September 19th. And now Sampaio, she's the an associate professor of ethnic studies and political science and the chair of the ethnic studies department at Santa Clara University. So Ana Sampaio, we have someone who is a political scientist by training. Um, so how does she take up the field of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies in her work? Yeah, kind of centrally, I think. Um, you know, her, her last book, Terrorizing Latina, Latino Immigra- uh, Immigrants, which is through Temple University Press, I believe, in 2015. Uh, and I should say, by the way, real quick, we'll put the sites in our show notes uh, for all these uh, essays and books and stuff that we talk about in today's episode. So Terrorizing Latino Latino Immigrants is, is really a, a wonderful and fascinating book that tries to, uh, to historicize and contextualize the kind of moment in which she's writing and how this kind of like uh, particular regime of securitization uh, around the topic of, of immigration came to be, how it developed, you know, what its, uh, its, its, its kind of social and political roots are. And so the book is a really engaging examination and interrogation of a whole slew of policies, you know, federal uh, and also some state policies and the very kind of specific ways in which they kind of lead us up to this point where in the post 9-11 world, there's this kind of like you know, massive militarization, a move towards securitization in political discourse about immigration. So, you know, if I could quote just a couple of passages that I thought really crystallized things for me, crystallized and also like to me foretold the the kind of world that we've lived in since mm-hmm. uh, this book came out in 2015. So this is in the conclusion of of her book. She writes, While the new security regime and the racialization of immigrants as public security threats gained traction and escalated after 9-11, they were rooted in a history of immigrant racialization manifest throughout 20th century immigration politics. Uh, And she continues a page later, the national security regime relied heavily on the production of security discourse founded upon racialized fears and gendered logic and a gendered logic of protection to legitimate aggressive military mobilization abroad and restrictions at home that were aimed at immigrants but had the effect of reconfiguring citizenship. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, seeing this, like, I, I can't help but think about all the moments in the last couple of years, you know, the last year or so, where, like, you know, 
Trump mobilizes the army to go to the border, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how the border enforcement has expanded beyond just the specific border regions and gone all throughout the interior of the United States uh, in what a lot of people see as a kind of overstepping of, uh, of, of ICE's role. And I think that's one of the really interesting things to consider, especially in Iowa, right? Because we think about the borderlands or the space of the border as the one that is highly under surveillance, militarized, et cetera, et cetera. But we we have lived that reality here in Iowa with Postville, right? One of the largest raids, now perhaps the second largest after what just happened in Mississippi, where that border does move. It, it is changing. It is in flux of what policing looks like, what militarization looks like, yeah. what that protection surveillance looks like, and how immigrants are racialized yeah. as as this other. Well, and to tap in also, you, know, you mentioned the, the recent raid in Mississippi, which you know, since we're recording this in advance is you know, has happened a little while ago when you're listening to this episode, but just happened a couple of days ago for us. You know, that happens on the heels of uh, a huge mass shooting, right? A racist mass shooting in El Paso, which, you know, one way to kind of think about that and to understand that is as an extension of that militarization, Mm -hmm. right? And policing uh, where white people, right, take it upon themselves, and we've, we've seen, you know, we've seen this for years with right. uh, the the Minutemen, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this is a kind of like you know a new, a newer in some ways, newer but also old manifestation, right, mm-hmm. of it of someone taking it upon themselves to expel what you know what Trump has called over and over again an invasion, which you know is just if you know anything about the history of Texas, right. It's just one of the most absurd right, things to say. Right, exactly, right, exactly, exactly. Which I take to be, you know, which I take to be part of of Sampaio's point too. And part, I think, the point of anyone who is working within Latino Latino studies is, you know, we have to have a better grasp of this history and of, of the kind of staggering number of policies directed at Latinas and Latinos and Latinx folks that shape how, as a country, we understand Latino belonging, mm-hmm. uh, how we understand the relationship between uh, Latinx folk and citizenship. Yeah. And really thinking about, you know, Sampaio's point, how they are constructed, how immigrants are constructed as foreigners and potential terrorist threats, right? And that that threat, that rhetoric, that invasion rhetoric, the real world, real life consequences that it entails and how we see it just play out, unfortunately, in, in our everyday lives, not only on the border, but also in spaces like Iowa, like Mississippi, like El Paso, right? Yeah. And so these conversations are are going to be really interesting to to hear, um, especially with uh, Ana Sampaio's talk. And the title of her talk is Race, Reckoning, and Renewal, Examining Latina, Latino, Latinx Resistance Amidst Intersectional Violence. And that also, I think... Uh, talking about political science, uh, takes us to another scholar that we'll be bringing in, Valerie Martinez-Ebers, and she is the director of LMAS and University Distinguished Research Professor of Political Science at the University of North Texas. Valerie is going to be giving a talk uh, entitled Caras Latinas en el Espejo, Representation and Latina Elected Officials. So another political scientist, Daryl, tell us a little bit more about her. 
I, I have to start by saying I had the, the pleasure of working with her when I was a, an assistant professor at the University of North Texas. And so I'm really excited to be bringing her to campus here. Part of what, part of I think where uh, where she comes from as really one of the uh, one of the longstanding leaders in political science uh, and dealing with 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 kind of Latinos and Latinas in the in the, in the realm of political science. Part of where she's coming from is um, is in combating what has been a kind of longstanding ignorance amongst uh, people in politics. Uh, about the kind of like history uh, and significance of uh, Latinx folks in the United States. Uh, And so in 2010, uh, she and some co-authors published a book called Latino Lives in America, where, you know, the the book kind of begins with uh, with a bit of a kind of uh, reflection on the massive protests that happened in 2006. So if you remember those protests, there was the kind of biggest one was uh, was in Los Angeles. Um, it's known as the Grand Marcha. And one of the kind of significant things within uh, the national mediation of that event was the surprise that people had. Like, oh, my gosh, all these ideas. The Latinos Great take, Awakening. Yes, they're taken to the streets. What, where did this come from? Right. Um, and you know, part of uh, part of what Martinez Ebers is trying to argue, and her colleagues are trying to argue in in that uh, that 2010 book is, you know, it's not that surprising mm-hmm. if you know if you've paid attention at all to Latinos in the United States. Um, and so, you know, they make the point early in the book of saying, you know, whatever else the marches of 2006 may have accomplished, they made it clear that our collective knowledge of Latino political orientations was, at best, incomplete and quite possibly dated beyond usefulness, end quote. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of wish Renee was here to to to, to pick up on this for us. <laughs> so, yeah, too bad Renee's not here. But so I'll just ask the question and let it like float in the ether. Maybe Renee will like pop up on Twitter uh, when he hears this. Yeah, you know, I wonder the degree to which this um, this perspective, right, that uh, the, that our collective knowledge of Latino political orientations was incomplete, right, or dated. You know, the degree to which that perspective remains valid today. Um, so, like, have white political scientists caught up? Uh, is robust knowledge of Latina, Latino, Latinx politics limited to those mostly Latina, Latino scholars for whom Latinx politics is their main focus? What about non-political scientists, pollsters, politicians, right? Media folks. I'm asking these questions. Yeah, this is this is kind right. of right. I'm just gonna take a take a guess there and say no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just just guessing, right? That uh, that yeah, yeah. It's it's still it's still the case, right? That I think, and we talked about this a, a bit in our first episode right. too. That that within all of our fields of study, I think the kind of Theorizing that happens at the, you know, oftentimes at the highest levels is one that is marked by a kind of white normativity mm-hmm. uh, that is, you know, that operates in ignorance of minoritized others, and that includes Latinx folks. Exactly. Yeah. As you were reading that question, I kept thinking about that first recording because it really does feel like in each of our uh, respective uh, disciplines, there is that that gap, right? Or there is there are the few that are discovered as either, in my case, literary voices of the United States. Um, but the, the same could be true within political science as well as, I'm sure, uh, communication studies where there's lots of work to be done, yeah. lots of visibility to, to really um, be able to highlight or recognize. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yeah, so I'm really excited to 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 have her on campus. Uh, she's a great speaker. If you're not able to attend the events, I hope that you'll watch the live stream or watch the video after the fact. But this talk on Latina elected officials, where there's really so little scholarship um, on that subject, I, I can't wait to see to hear what she has to say. Someone else who's dealing with uh, with kind of this political realm and really kind of in some ways bridging the gap between how we've been talking, how we just talked about some bio and Martinez Ebers is Gina Perez, who will be giving a talk titled Becoming a Sanctuary People, Faith-Based Responses to Global and National Crises in Latina, Latino, Latinx America. Now, this is someone that's coming from American Studies at Oberlin College, and this is going to be new work for her that she'll be sharing with us. One of her projects had to do with JROTC and questions of citizenship, and that book was entitled Citizen, Student, Soldier, Latina, Latino, Youth, JROTC, and the American Dream. Um, But here we have her talking about the sanctuary movement um, and thinking about it specifically in Ohio, um, some of its ramifications, some of the ways that we think about these questions of belonging, how we see ourselves as a nation and what the sanctuary movement might mean in relationship to that. Yeah. And this work, as you already pointed out, bears that connection to her earlier work on uh, on kind of JROTC and citizenship. and also has a connection to uh, the, her broader approach to Latino studies, uh, Latino Latino studies, and, and the, the kind of examination of Latinx lives. And another book, an edited book called Beyond El Barrio, she writes with her co-authors in the introduction, at a moment in which Latinas' O's are increasingly visible in U.S. popular culture, media, public discourse, and community struggles, the material conditions and actual experiences of U.S. Latinas owes are largely unexplored, misunderstood, and frequently trapped in racialized stereotypes. And that points to this move to underscore the importance of, of kind of getting away from notions of a barrio being things that kind of are built upon stereotypes, assumptions, and what they call stigmatizing tropes uh, as well, and I'm quoting here still, as well as nostalgia, reified and uncritical portraits of complex and heterogeneous Latina Latino lives. Part of what what she's doing then is trying to really underscore the complexity of Latinidades, right? To move us away from uh, this kind of like stale notion, static notion of a homogenous Latinidad, one that when it's crafted in that way, necessarily leaves out all that complexity. It's trapped in uh, in these moves to racialize Latinos and Latinas and Latinx folks in really particular problematic ways. And getting to a kind of fuller understanding of the different and complex ways uh, in which Latinidades get crafted in the United States. And, you know, earlier we were talking about sort of the everyday lived realities um, that are experienced as Latina, Latino, Latinx peoples in the United States. So one of the things that I really appreciate and look forward to hearing about is how, again, a place that's not necessarily on the borderland, Ohio, right? How Ohio is imagining a Latina, Latino, Latinx immigrant community, um, how it's informed by that community, and really thinking again about those everyday real life practices that are occurring. 
So, you know, we were talking about Gina Perez and how uh, we're very fortunate that we get to hear some of the new work that she's doing uh, within the sanctuary movement. Someone else that's going to be introducing some new work is Claudia Milian, and she is an associate professor of romance studies at Duke University who will be talking to us about the X Corridor, Environmental Degradation and Central American Migrations. So she's someone who her last book was Latining America, Black, Brown Passages and the Coloring of Latino-Latina Studies. And so, Daryl, what is she going to be talking to us about in this presentation? Well, that's a great question. Before we get there, I just want to add one of the things that I really appreciate about uh, about Milian's work is how she's taken Latina, Latina, Latinx studies head on uh, in the last couple of years in some really significant ways. So she was centrally involved in a, a couple of special issues of uh, the journal Cultural Dynamics, the most recent of which in 2019 uh, is called Latinx Studies, Variations, and Velocities. And in that issue, there is assembled a group of writers who are really pushing the boundaries uh, of Latino-Latino studies and moving beyond, you know, she kind of frames it beyond Latino-Latino studies into you know, Latinx studies or Latinx studies. And that's significant because, you know, she points out on page four, there is not one single narrative or method that represents or governs the changing terrain of Latinx studies. Uh, and that idea that there isn't a single narrative or a single method, I think, is you know, something that is really important to, uh, to, to Ariana and Renee uh, and I in how we put together this, uh, this Imagining Latinidades Sawyer seminar in the first place, right? Bringing together people from across the range of disciplines in the humanities uh, and social science, uh, social sciences uh, in order to really kind of like grapple with all of the different kinds of angles of approach and features of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies. That spirit that there isn't a single narrative, a single method, I can't help but feel informs uh, her approach uh, and the move into this, as far as I can tell, of a newer topic area for her. And she's definitely someone who is thinking about Latina, Latino, Latinx studies on that global scale, right? So the book project that I'd mentioned earlier considers how underexplored Latin participants, the Southern, the Black, the Dark Brown, the Central American, have ushered a new world of Latined signification from the 1920s to the present. So she's really thinking about, you know, what does Latina, Latino, Latinx mean? How is it that we can start to trouble notions, um, even our own discipline, right, to really include voices that aren't always uh, at the forefront of what we think of when we consider the term Latinidad. Yeah. And to make that connection then also to environmental degradation in, right. the, in her talk, right, connecting up the environment uh, and Central American migrations, I think is going to make for just a, a really fascinating study. Um, you know, in the abstract, she notes that the talk focuses on Latinx life, Latinx beings, uh, in light of new paradigm shifts vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Latinx ethno-racial and political descriptor, as well as ecological degradation. Uh, and she continues, X's indefinite quality impacts a major concern of our time. The unthought of scale and impact of environmental destruction paired with the new forms of Latinx displacements and transitions. And so putting those things together, right, and making those connections for us uh, is going to kind of, you know, 
bring us into that kind of broader hemispheric kind of approach and global approach as well uh, to Latinx studies and bringing it into connection with what I think is you know, arguably one of the one of the biggest conversations of our time, right? The fate of the you know, of, of the natural world, the fate of the environment. But, you know, another thing that that brings up for me is just the notion of the X, right? What is at work in that X? What is it doing? How is it functioning? I love the fact that she says X's indefinite quality impacts a major concern of our time, the unthought of scale and impact of environmental destruction, but really putting that X to work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how is it that we're employing it um, within our respective uh, fields as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing her unpack that uh, and to having the broader conversations in our roundtables um, and across these conferences and symposia about what kind of work that X can do, which you know, which has been a, a big topic of discussion in Latino, Latino, Latinx studies uh, over the, especially over the last couple of years. Yeah. So moving from Claudia Milian's work, um, especially thinking about the environment, we're now going to transition to a more urban space, Los Angeles, uh, with the work of Natalia Molina, who's a professor of American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. So she's going to be talking about Mexican community in 20th century Los Angeles. The title of her presentation is Placemakers, the story of a Mexican community in 20th century Los Angeles. She's looking at the space of the restaurant as a place making site, right? So really thinking about um, sort of the activism that can arise from that setting. And she's someone whose earlier book entitled How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of Racial Scripts. So she's been doing work on, on these questions of belonging of citizenship. Yeah. That book, uh, How Race is Made in America, is one that I've assigned to my grad students numerous times. Uh, it's one that uh, that in that in communication studies has kind of made a bit of a splash, right? In terms of giving people a, 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 an additional vocabulary for talking about the ways in which race gets kind of written, the ways in which the discourse of race and racism gets produced and circulates uh, within the United States. And so that that I, the idea that's central to that book of racial scripts has become really pretty important in rhetorical studies in particular. Uh, and so I can't wait for uh, for her to be here, and, and hopefully that that will come up at at one point or, or another. But this talk on placemakers, I think, is connected up to some uh, to to some other work that she's done on the topic, where she's written and and the citation for this uh, for this essay, which is called "The Importance of Place uh, and Placemakers in the Life of a Los Angeles Community." Um, in the Southern California Quarterly. She writes in that paper that her goal is to, quote, reveal ways in which individuals and groups who do not work explicitly to subvert social norms can nonetheless be placemakers who leave a mark on the urban landscape for generations to come. And so earlier we were talking about this kind of like distinction between the big visible forms of kind of like citizenship making um, and political belonging, right? The, like like the big protests in the streets, right? right? Um, and what she's turning our attention to are those, uh, are the things that are kind of more easily overlooked, right? Those kinds of everyday practices that we, we may not think of as resistive, 
but are incredibly significant uh, in the formation of notions and communities and spaces and places of belonging. And she kind of takes a, a bit of a, a nod from Robin D.G. Kelly's work um, on kind of uh, the uh, black freedom struggles uh, and his call to engage in histories from below to focus on aspects of resistance and cultural formation in everyday life. You know, in the, in the essay of, of Molina's that I mentioned just a minute ago, she says, I would like for us to see that Mexican immigrants made important contributions to their communities, whether or not they ever joined the League of United Latin American Citizens or the American GI Forum or bucked the system as a zoot suitor. Mm-hmm. And so really thinking about these spaces in between, um, specifically, she's looking at the area of Los Angeles Echo Park, which in itself has rapidly, drastically changed as a result of gentrification these last couple of years. Um, so thinking about how the space, again, a, a space where Mexican, Mexican-American peoples enter uh, that sense of conviviendo, right, of being with one another in food, in in sound, with music, smells, taste, mm-hmm. all of these different things can create a place that is just as important and I would say politically charged as these other more direct action uh, type of type of things. Yeah, I'm really excited to to hear this talk. And the way you just framed it is 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 wonderful. And it has me thinking about some of the work that I've been doing lately. Um, you know, go, kind of returning back to the Young Lords because it, you know, for whatever reason, I can't get away from the mm-hmm. Young Lords. Um, going back to the Young Lords and thinking about, okay, you know, I've, I've talked about the, these kind of big acts of protest and mm-hmm. resistance that they've engaged in uh, in in my last book, but but. Moving from that to think about those kinds of small-scale everyday things like food, elements of foodways, the way that music played a role in kind of everyday life and experience for them, and how those opened up spaces for uh, joy and celebration Mm -hmm. um, and, and kind of you know, the ability to craft those bonds of belonging amongst people in the community that, that are no less significant, I think, than the, you know, the big 10,000 person march to the United Nations mm-hmm. or the, the, you know, the super visible protest in the street where they're clashing with police, right? You know, it's not to say that's not right, important, but right. there's, there's kind of, you know, ways in which these different kinds of practices, some more visible, some less visible, uh, have you know great significance for the kind of holistic development mm-hmm. of these different senses of belonging, and really thinking about those means to an end, and sometimes that end is again going back to that earlier comment, just existing, right? Just being able to go and and enjoy a meal that reminds you of home, things of that nature. So it'll be. It, it, I'm looking forward to Molina's talk and what um, she'll bring, especially in relationship to the other people that she'll be in conversation with. And that that kind of like commitment to 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 being able to exist, right? Uh, and to having to be able to craft your own sense of visibility, kind of leads us to our last speaker mm-hmm. for this first event, uh, who, which is Arlene Davila, who's a professor of anthropology and American studies at New York University. Her talk, entitled "Guidelines for Imagining Latinx Art," comes from uh, her new project on Latinx art. 
I first came to Arlene Davila's work when I was uh, doing dissertation research uh, and ran across her book on sponsored identities, which is about uh, kind of policy regarding Puerto Rican culture uh, that developed on the island. And so coming at her from the Puerto Rican studies perspective and seeing her work really kind of evolve over the years to take a kind of broader uh, perspective that links up Latin American studies and Latino, Latino, Latinx studies, and you know that focuses on things you know as specific as the the very kind of particular practices that people are engaged in in their local communities and in their you know shopping practices at malls in Colombia, for example, to you know these broader kind of forces of mediation uh, through her work uh, in like Latinos Inc to her work on gentrification in East Harlem. It's really, you know, it's, it's, it's really exciting to see, uh, to, to see the evolution of this, of this new work on uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx art. And really, she's someone who's thinking about cultural politics, right? And just yeah. how we see that in action. Um, as someone who does work on uh, not only literary art, but just different types of artistic expression by Latina, Latino, Latinx peoples, um, she's really asking these questions of, you know, what does it mean to to always be seen as a forever foreigner? How are we being represented or not represented within these public institutions like the museum, right? And so really highlighting those questions, those spaces, and what does it mean to not be seen, to not see yourself in in um, in a museum, right? How is it that really tied to these questions of race and racism, these structures that are embedded into our, our everyday life? Yeah, and the kind of, and one of those structures is the kind of black-white binary, right, that you know, as a re- as a result of that binary, where life in America can only be understood as black or white, and the art world can only be understood as as black or white and made intelligible in, the, in that way, I think she points to the ways that the art world makes sense of Latinos and Latinas and Latinx folks in a manner that draws from. Uh, stereotypes of what makes authentic Latino culture and brings us to the point where, uh, in her assessment, Latinos are impossible to kind of conceptualize and imagine in contemporary art in the United States. Latin American art, she points out, uh, is given, is given, is given a great degree of legitimacy. Right. But Latina, Latino, Latinx art uh, is not. And so she's kind of, you know, her new work is exploring why that's the case and kind of what we can do about it. And I think, you know, you were talking earlier about this black and white binary, but we also see a Latin American uh, U.S. binary, U.S. and Latin America both omitting or having that omission of Latinidad, right, of, of that Latino experience. So in this talk, um, she's going to be examining uh, why uh, we don't know more about Latinx artists and why we should care. And she argues that learning to see how race and racism structures the arts is central to imagining Latinx art. She also ar- uh, plans to argue that the invisibility of Latinx art affects our ability to achieve a more equitable and diverse contemporary art world and just society. So that is quite a lineup. And we have the privilege, the honor of being able to not only hear them all present their work individually, but also have them in conversation um, at the closing of the opening conference uh, through a roundtable that will be recorded. 
Yes, we're, we're going to be doing two roundtables, one at the close of Friday and one at the close of Saturday with three of the presenters on each of the roundtables. And that we're going to record as a podcast episode. And for this, uh, for this opening conference, there'll be bonus episodes that will show up uh, after the conference, but not on our regular episode schedule. Uh, and then in future symposia and for the closing conference, uh, they'll show up as the kind of next episode after the event. And I think that's going to be so great to be able to hear uh, the types of conversations and dialogue that emerges in that roundtable, right? In those two roundtables, the one that we have set up for Friday as well as for Saturday of the opening conference. And you said that folks will be able to listen to it. How so? Yeah. So uh, for the roundtables, you'll be able to listen to that just on our podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, please do so. Please tell your friends to subscribe as well because uh, those roundtable episodes will just kind of show up there. And if you can't make it to uh, to the live events, we're going to be live streaming them. And after the events are over, those videos of the talks minus the Q&A will end up uh, on our uh, on our YouTube channel as well. And so you'll be able to go back and see the full talk and then hear the roundtable discussion of, uh, of each of those folks. Uh, and I think, you know, become hopefully a really useful resource for scholars and for teachers who want to expose their students to, uh, to these great topics. And if you still want more, you can also follow us on Twitter, where we will be live tweeting the events as well as have links to all of the things that we've mentioned in terms of the podcast and the live streaming on YouTube um, and things of that nature. And what is that handle? So for the podcast, our handle is Imagining Lat. Uh, and that's where you'll get to hear all things podcast. Uh, for the for the talks and for the Sawyer seminar, the handle on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook is U Iowa L A T S. U Iowa L A T S. So the opening conference uh, will be again on September nineteenth through the twenty first. The conference will be held at the Iowa City Public Library. Lots more information. Lots more details on. Um, our list of speakers is available at our website, imagininglatinidades.com. Finally, uh, please be sure to share the podcast with your friends uh, and give us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. That really helps to increase the visibility of the podcast and to help get the word out uh, with, the, with the hope that we end up on the kind of new and noteworthy list that Apple keeps for each of the different categories of podcasts. And with that, we want to thank you all for tuning in, listening in, giving us some, some of your time, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, and if you have any questions or want to uh, want to engage with us in other ways, uh, again, you can tweet us uh, or you can email us at podcast at imaginingladinidades.com. Thanks. <laughs>